Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Professor Barry Rabe of the University of Michigan about his new book, Can We Price Carbon? Barry will share his insights on some of the real-world challenges for implementing policies that price carbon and describe some of the key features that might help make them stick. We'll talk about how experience from previous efforts to price carbon can inform discussions on the Green New Deal and much, much more. Stay with us. Barry Rabe, my friend and colleague at the University of Michigan, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Daniel, thanks so much for inviting me. So Barry, we're going to talk today about your new book, Can We Price Carbon? But before we get into the substance of that, can you tell our audience a little bit about how you got into the world of energy and environment? Sure. I actually began my career coming out of graduate school principally interested in issues of healthcare and public health. Actually, my first appointment here at Michigan was in the School of Public Health. Terrific place. As the years began to pass, though, after a few years in residence, but even before that, I really became more and more interested, not so much in the question of healthcare delivery, but all the steps that we might take to deter harms coming to people through various kinds of risks. That led me increasingly to an environmental agenda, and then often with the question of how the use of energy leads to possible environmental damage or environmental human health damage. There was also a bit of a role because of my interest in areas like tobacco, not only abatement strategies, but regulatory issues, and I am the son of a cigar salesman. I watched that industry. I watched the huge transformations of that industry that have actually achieved a great deal in terms of driving down smoking rates. And was brought here to the University of Michigan in part through collaboration with Ken Warner, a defining figure in the economics and disease prevention. And those conversations with Ken really kind of convinced me to think about public health issues and prevention kinds of considerations, but kept pushing me much more to and more again environmental health kinds of questions. That's great. Thinking now about the, the world of the energy transition, which you think a lot about and is very relevant to our conversation, I imagine there are some lessons that we can look to the transition away from tobacco farming in some communities and the reliance on tobacco uh, as an economic driver and the tobacco settlement monies and uh, all of those issues that I know very little bit about, uh, but, um, but I imagine have some relevance for the energy and environmental world as well. I do think there are important parallels and analogies in other areas. It's not always just an inside energy discussion and thinking about the direction of energy policy. One of the things that really does intrigue me about tobacco as a potential model in the energy space is that we've achieved this tremendous reduction in the U.S. from a point where not that long ago, just a few decades, more than 40% of Americans smoked on a regular basis. That's now been reduced into the low teens through a combination of policies, but all of the serious work on the political economy of tobacco puts first and foremost the fact that we have been willing to use the T word of taxation. Going back to cigarette excise taxes, which ironically have an evolution across the states and diffusion to the federal government with some very strong parallels with the gasoline excise tax and decisions by both the federal government but all states over the last 25 years to use that tool aggressively to drive up the product, the price of a product which is legal to, to produce, legal to refine, and for the most part legal to use, although there's now restrictions on how that's used. I do think there are some lessons there. And yet when you compare the tobacco industry, where Dad used to work, 
to the energy industry and fossil fuels, when you move toward energy, you're talking about far more people, far more congressional districts, far more states' political vested interest, and far greater use. It's not in the mid-40 range. We all are linked to the fossil fuel use, and hence the politics becomes much more challenging. Yeah. Well, this sounds like another episode uh, that we'll have to revisit uh, connections between uh, policies on smoking and tobacco and uh, in energy. So put a pin in that and we'll come back to it another time. So um, we're going to talk again today about carbon pricing uh, and your new book, which I strongly recommend to people. It's called Can We Price Carbon? And uh, carbon pricing, just to put a really quick gloss on it, uh, carbon pricing is the basic idea that the government applies some kind of price signal to the carbon content of fossil fuels that are consumed in the economy, which uh, discourages their use and encourages the uptake of alternatives, as well as encourages uh, R&D to develop new technologies that can reduce carbon dioxide emissions, which of course are the primary uh, driver of climate change. So, um, with that uh, incredibly brief description of what carbon pricing is, uh, let's do a quick review of the state of carbon pricing around the world. Can you give us a you know, quick tour uh, around the world of some of the jurisdictions uh, that are pricing carbon uh, and give us a sense of what sectors they apply to in the economy, as well as what actual price levels we've seen in recent years. And there's a lot of ground we could cover here. So I'll just ask you to you know, pick whichever examples you think are, are most interesting and uh, just give us a sense of how they're playing out on the ground. Sure. So this is not a new idea. This has been kicking around in circles, particularly in the discipline of economics. And I say that as a card-carrying political scientist, not an economist, for decades. It has been used in a number of contexts and settings, perhaps most notably applied to carbon in a series of Nordic cases, a series of countries, including Norway, large fossil fuel producer, but Sweden and others, that adopted, still by global standards, rather high carbon prices through tax mechanisms in the very early 1990s. At that point, the expectation was, certainly amongst economists, but most scholars and policy analysts working in the climate space, that this idea would truly sweep the globe, that we would probably move toward a global interlocking system, whether that was through the Kyoto Protocol or anything else. That has not happened. But what we do have is kind of a patchwork quilt of experiments, examples, in some cases, experiments that have lasted for a while and we could begin to evaluate, but a great number of them are relatively in the European Union, perhaps most significantly, a number of jurisdictions beyond those Nordic cases have adopted some combination of a carbon tax or perhaps building on large gasoline or energy taxes for transportation, but moving it into a continental trading system, cap and trade, or the uh, EU emissions trading scheme. That's one that has had lots of bumps and management issues and problems, but recent evidence suggests over the last few years that it may be moving into a more mature middle age and achieving some of the things that it's supposed to be doing to meet those goals. Beyond Europe, we have some experimentation with this in um, Canada and the United States. A number of states have experimented with cap and trade. If we were having this conversation 10 years ago, we would be talking about the 23 states, including the one where we're having this conversation in Michigan, as committed to cap and trade 
At this moment, we have seen a reversal, and we're down to essentially 11 states, possibly a 12th one coming in. Canada is in the midst of a major experiment about a national strategy for a carbon price arrangement that gives a lot of authority toward individual provinces. And we've also seen uptick on this issue in places like Mexico, Colombia, Chile, and others. Asia, uh, also a player in this, South Korea, Japan, and the like. For the most part, these policies do not cover every possible sector as might be optimal or preferred by many economists. It tends to be sector specific. Many of these prices are set at a relatively low level, so they might have some bite and impact, but are likely to be modest. There's also a sort of Swiss cheese-like quality to many of them because there are exemptions and loopholes in part of the need to close the political deal to make a tax or pricing system acceptable. There are these adjustments, and yet there are these policy laboratories in national governments, continentally, and we can begin to look at this. By many estimates, about 50 nations have some skin in the game and have some form of a carbon price, but one has to be careful not to state the overall impact or scope of those as presently designed. Right. And the prices that you mentioned, just so people have a, a general sense of where they are, if we're looking at somewhere like California, I believe prices are in the $15 a ton range. If we're looking in the European Union, prices have moved up significantly from their lows of a few years ago. They're now in the range of, I want to say, about $25 uh, to $30 uh, in U.S. terms. So, um, so to, just so you have a sense of where those prices are lately. So as you mentioned, policymakers, economists in particular, many of my colleagues at Resources for the Future uh, have been thinking about carbon taxes or carbon pricing for a long time uh, and working on it. Why did you want to put this book, Can We Price Carbon? Uh, why do you see it as a valuable contribution at, at this point in time? I began to think about the idea of this book over a decade ago when was, I was watching patterns and trends in climate policy development. What would actual governments do? Not just a theoretical discussion of how we might design the best possible system where the contribution the economists have made in carbon pricing is so powerful and so impactful. But what happens when you go into the real world of politics, the real world of governments having to make decisions at a national scale, a subnational scale, or a continental scale? began to see even a decade ago that if you look empirically at what governments were doing, just beginning with the model of American states, carbon pricing was part of the conversation. In some cases, you saw early adoption, but you also saw a lot of other policies, regulatory mandates, requirements to purchase more renewable energy, subsidies and incentives that were not what economists were saying is the best way to go. But politically, they were much more likely to be adopted and actually sustained over some period of time. So I actually, kind of as a hobby, developed a tracking system about 10 years ago and began to monitor what all the American states, all the Canadian provinces, but then also looking globally at what was and was not happening. And then ultimately concluded that this is an arena as a political scientist and someone who thinks not just about how do we get something done in a legislature now, but does that policy stick and last over time? I have long-standing interest in what I call the policy life cycle. If you, through democratic channels, adopt a policy, can you then stand it up through administrative channels? Does it survive subsequent elections and changes of leadership? 
and does it perform empirically over time? I felt what was missing in the discussion was an honest discussion of the political realities and why this compelling idea in some cases could be adopted and be sustained, but in many others was either rejected outright or reversed, as in the case of some of those states that we talked about a moment ago, reversed after a few years, where the policy doesn't actually accomplish anything because it, it doesn't have the, the, the longer-term bite that you need from that elevated price. So the goal was to actually bring what it, early on was a relatively unique experience, a political science lens to the issue that is largely being engaged by economics, but I'm delighted to say the number of political science scholars, including a number of junior colleagues working in this terrain, is increasing. And I think we're beginning to formulate not a counter to the economics literature, but hopefully a complement. Is a great idea politically feasible or not? I couldn't agree more uh, that the contribution of political scientists is um, is incredibly valuable for thinking about a policy that... Um, that again, my colleagues have have focused on for for a long time, and actually, you know, how do we get it done in the real world? So, can you tell us a little bit about some of the design features that you think are particularly important when it comes to durability of carbon pricing policies? Um, you you spend a lot of time in the book talking about some of those key elements, and I know we probably won't be able to cover all of them, but can you highlight uh, maybe one or two for us? Sure. First of all, there's a challenge here because the set or the N of cases that are what I would call robust, that work through all of those stages of the life cycle, perform over time, is relatively small. So from a standpoint of generalizability or theoretical development, it's hard to go far because we're working with kind of an odd set of cases and the N is overall small. But if there are common design features and elements, I would sort of put them into a particular basket and perhaps we can illustrate it through a specific one or two cases. I do think that this often begins in a jurisdiction in response to real, more localized concerns about climate change. Something is seen in the local political context that triggers or elevates climate change as a concern and creates a classic window of opportunity to really engage and develop a policy that has that kind of pricing mechanism. Usually there is leadership that can begin with a fairly solid base in a particular political party, but almost immediately look for, looks for ways to, if you are going to try to develop a policy and outflank opposition, how you ultimately build a constituency over time. In successful, robust cases, serious attention is paid to the public management or the administration of policy. I think one th problem that we have seen is that, especially in areas like cap and trade, which is very complicated policy in many respects, it does not automatically self-implement. If there are problems and bumps, you have to develop an adaptive capacity. Developing a constituency is hugely important because those supportive leaders, those policy entrepreneurs, will inevitably leave the scene. We have elections. We have election cycles. Do we see policies where a carbon price becomes a target for an opposition party to gain power and reverse that policy upon being elected? We've seen that in the U.S. We've seen that in Australia. We may see it very soon in Canada. All of those factors come into play. And I do think one other ingredient, and I would not say this is the secret sauce by any means, but in a carbon price, you are asking people to consider a commodity that they know, that they are familiar with the pricing, especially gasoline, 
and ask them to make an immediate sacrifice, an elevated price. And you can argue that in climate terms with the hope that that provides a benefit in future decades. A laudable goal, but a hard political sell. But when you impose a price, you do produce revenue. And I do think there is much to be learned from examples where there has been strategic consideration toward how you build a political constituency and a base of support. There's no amount of benefit through expenditure that can likely offset the pain for many folks from higher energy prices. But I do think that question of how you use the revenue, whether that becomes a compelling story that people get behind, is an important part of this. And is often historically, outside the energy area, uh, part of the recipe of developing long-term support for a political strategy that involves some imposition of pain through tax, whether it's payroll tax for Social Security or President Eisenhower going back to the excise tax to launch the highway legislation of the 1950s. Well, so, so there's there's so much to to unpack there. Again, I wish we had <laughs> so much more time, but you know, this is just an advertisement for why people should go out and get the book and, and dive more deeply into these issues. Um, I, I certainly know that thinking about the distributional impacts of carbon pricing has been an increasing focus of economists, and there's been a lot more work on modeling those impacts and estimating how particularly lower-income households can be made whole, or perhaps more than whole, uh, depending on the use of revenues. And folks like you know Gib Metcalf at Tufts and, uh, and our own Mark Hafstead at RFF have shown, I, I think pretty compellingly, that... Um, that lower-income households in particular can be made whole uh, and in many cases can actually be made better off uh, if certain policies are put in place that use the revenue to to compensate those lower-income households. Is that a particularly politically salient element uh, from carbon pricing? Or in, in other words, do you think that this distributional question is at the top of the list when it comes to political challenges of implementing carbon pricing, or is it uh, lower in the rank? It is significant, but not the only one. And I very much appreciate the contribution of those economists and others to begin to think about the economic consequences, the distributional equity of different kinds of revenue allocation strategies. Here, I would only note that all of this has to play out in real-time political terms. It is one thing and a valuable contribution to talk about what those distributional consequences would be, assuming you can get a bill through a legislature that has no exemptions, is stable, and is implemented exactly as it is promised. We live not just in the U.S., but around the world in times where Governments are not necessarily trusted. The durability of policy is being reversed. We have gone through a number of presidencies now where multiple Congresses have struggled to even reauthorize clean air and clean water legislation, much less take on climate change for decades. That often then means that you have presidencies, and we see this at the state level, that jerk back and forth, pulling levers back and forth. In a case like carbon pricing, part of the deal has to be a long-term plan, and that question of durability really does loom large. So how do ordinary people, ordinary citizens who are not policy wonks, hear what these benefits are or potential benefits are? Do they really believe that governments will deliver on them? Do they believe that there will be shifts and changes and all of that? that that's part of the message. It's not just figuring out conceptually how you would like to allocate those resources, 
but doing it in a way that's persuasive and ultimately convincing and builds support over time rather than loses it. Yeah. Fascinating to, to consider all of these issues. Um, one example of a policy that has been getting a lot of traction uh, in the media, certainly, uh, and perhaps in the public as well, is uh, is the idea of the Green New Deal, which, of course, is, is not fully formed, hasn't been spelled out in, in uh, the I's haven't been dotted and the T's haven't been crossed. But one thing that um, that does seem to be coming through is that carbon pricing certainly doesn't look like it's at the center of the Green New Deal. And, and some of its backers, including Representative Ocasio-Cortez, um, have even referred to carbon taxes using a word like wimpy uh, in a recent interview. So um, are there lessons from your analysis on carbon pricing that you think... Um, can help inform discussions about the Green New Deal, either for uh, its supporters, uh, the Green New Deal supporters, or others who are trying to figure out how to how to mold this idea of a Green New Deal into the um, more historically accepted, preferred approach that economists uh, might like of uh, uh, something like carbon pricing. Well, I think for many reasons. We owe a debt to the advocates of a Green New Deal for elevating saliency and awareness of this issue at a point where more and more people in the United States and around the world are seeing clear, demonstrable evidence of weather and other issues that are linked to, can be linked to climate change and a recognition that the science on this issue gets more and more robust and we need to take steps now. I also give them very high marks for reminding everyone that this is not something that can be just concentrated into one little narrow bucket or sector of policy. It cuts across the board and will involve a far-reaching mechanism, all to the good, and has really triggered a lot of passion and new energy in this area, which I welcome. A challenge will be whether the carbon price is wimpy or not, what is ultimately the design of policy going to look like? There's always this question when you're leading a social movement and trying to engage people and build a broad movement behind something. When do you begin to come to terms with what the actual policies, whether they are regulatory, attacks, or subsidies would look like? And this is one where I don't think we are seeing the transition yet in the, amongst Green New Deal advocates for, for laying out what those terms would be, including whether or not, in their estimation, a price would play a role. I think they underscore the likelihood quite substantially in other cases as well, that the idea that we're simply going to eliminate all other energy policies related to climate, all regulations, all initiatives, fuel economy, and have some grand bargain where there's one massive carbon price that drives everything is not a political reality for the United States or anywhere else in the world carbon price has to work alongside these other policies that are generally a lot more popular, are likely to have constituencies that are going to be fighting to maintain those over time. And so the fit really does become important. But at some point, you have to make a point of transition between rhetoric, aspiration, lofty goal, and the realities of policy. If, in fact, we are talking about a possible scenario in which in a 2020 election, there might be new receptivity on climate change from institutions in Washington, D.C. We are less than two years from a new government forming, a new president perhaps, a new Congress certainly. 
what will they be talking about? And if one looks at the history of every major environmental statute, certainly in the last 50 years, including air and water, at this point, before an electoral transition, there were beginning to be very serious discussions of what the key elements would be. If that involved some kind of a market-based mechanism or other kinds of regulations, we should simply not expect much opportunity to have a major electoral transition if one is to occur anytime soon, and then within a matter of weeks begin to cobble together incredibly complicated policy. So I think that is a missed opportunity. And if carbon pricing has a role to play in that discussion in the U.S., this is the time to really work that through. Whether the goal is to set a high price and do all the things that we were talking about earlier, or perhaps in some instances to find a revenue source to pay for some of the dislocation costs, new energy starts, or even dealing with the dislocation considerations. I know as someone who has spent a lot of time in oil and gas producing states like you, these are communities that could have a lot at stake through a major fossil fuel transition. How do we think about those communities provide support and all the rest. All of those are to be discussed, and I see no better time than the present to begin to engage that conversation. I couldn't agree more, and um, and happily, I think those conversations are happening uh, quietly in many cases, uh, and uh, maybe in the proverbial uh, smoky room, uh, probably not so smoky anymore with uh, less tobacco in the air, but... Um, I'm not in based in Washington D.C., but uh, but spend a lot of time with people who are, and um, and I think it's it's been encouraging to see engagement happening across a variety of spectrums on these topics. So we are running short of time, and of course, as usual, there's a million additional questions that I'd love to to ask you. One final question before we move to our top of the stack segment, where we uh, talk about some some fun stuff that we've been thinking about and reading. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot and uh, ask you to put on your Nostradamus hat and see if you can answer the question that the title of your book poses. Uh, can we price carbon? So, uh, so Barry Ray, can we price carbon? You know, at times I've lived to regret the title. I'm not someone who usually puts <laughs> a title on anything that includes a question mark. But I actually decided to shift it from the original title, The Politics of Carbon Pricing, as I went deeper and deeper into the subject and just became uncertain. I'm not really trying to joke around with the title. I think it's unclear. Uh I would not want to put, to make a bet, that any future Congress or any particular state or any government in the world will do carbon pricing. But I don't think it's remote. I think you can begin to see political patterns, coalitions, possibilities, even here in the U.S., even in states like Michigan, where this is feasible and possible going forward. I don't think I would bet everything that I own on that proposition, but I think it's a possibility, a fairly strong possibility in coming years. And I really am heartened by this notion of other models and examples, either from within our own arena of, of the world here in North America, but also more broadly. And I think that's where some of the really interesting work in this field is going. Yeah, great. Well, we'll have to circle back uh, sometime soon, uh, either on a podcast or not, to, uh, to get an update and see where things stand, uh, certainly after the next election, if not before. So uh, so now let's close it out with our top of the stack segment. So what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Uh, and I'll just briefly mention a, uh, a new piece of legislation that has been passed by the legislature, but not yet signed by the governor in Colorado. So this is Senate Bill 181, which uh, is a bill that focuses on the oil and gas industry. And it actually substantially expands local control 
uh, of siting and regulating oil and gas development for cities and municipalities in um, in Colorado. It expands uh, rules on methane emissions and other air emissions from oil and gas facilities. Uh, and it redirects the state regulatory body to focus more on protecting public health and the environment. Uh, so really fascinating piece of legislation. Today is uh, April 9th. Uh, not sure if the governor is going to sign it or not, but but I'll be watching, uh, and I imagine many of our listeners will too. So that's what I'm thinking about today and uh, in reading about. But Barry, what's uh, what's on the top of your stack? The immediate event involves elections coming in Canada, most notably Alberta. Is it possible for a jurisdiction for whom oil and gas production has been lifeblood for a long time, and yet unilaterally adopted a carbon price with some real bite to it, and even a plan to expand that to methane over the next five years. If a political figure takes that on, as Premier Rachel Notley did over the last few years, can she win re-election in a province where her election might have been a bit of a fluke? It's not a party that wins very often. Can you survive politically, especially in a place that lives and breathes oil and gas production, and argue that they can be a part of this? Or does the Alberta case follow the pattern we've seen elsewhere, in some cases in the U.S., and to see rejection? Um, The big item on my reading list, and it's a book that I began a year or so ago, I hadn't finished and have gone back to, is is Blood Oil by Leif Wiener, a philosopher. And it's a very deep and rich treatment from a philosopher's lens on all of the issues of energy, oil, production, and the like, and the circumstances, the ways we might think about constructive governance, engaging citizenries, and leaving that to be a much more robust sector. If I might bring one other piece in, uh, my colleague Mato Mildenberger at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, has been digging into a number of areas, as he often does, and has shared with me a fascinating book, Defending the the Land of the Jaguar, A History of Conservation in Mexico. Relatively new book on the political history of energy and conservation in Mexico. And at the very moment, we're looking at the AMLO experiment and looking where Mexico is going to go on all of these issues. I continue to find, as a political scientist, turning to philosophy, the first of the book, or something that's really more... Uh, energy history is very rich and important, something that I need to kind of ground myself as a, a scholar, but also someone concerned about these policy areas. So I've got one eye on Alberta, but the other eye on these books. Fantastic. So um, we'll make sure to have links to all those uh, readings on our show page and uh, look forward to digging into them. So Barry Rabe, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. 
Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.